Happy day, happy day, happy day. Welcome to Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Golay. Hello, Mary Golay. Hello. <laughs> we are like nice snuggled up. We're like snug as a rug in the bug in here. Snug as a bug in a rug? I think that would be the better way to do it. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? How are What's you? What's going on? How are you? <laughs> it's all good. Oh, man. Hanging out here on Beyond Eight Figures, where we sit down with top entrepreneurs. And we figure out exactly how... They got to eight figures and beyond, and in some cases exited from that business. So lots of fun things going on uh, in the world of business nowadays. It's uh, an exciting time to be alive, and uh, and I will tell you that uh, here on Beyond Eight Figures, I mean, we're really privileged to sit down with just some amazing folks from uh, across the globe. And Today, we're going to be joined by Mark Tim, who uh, works with the Ziegler family company. So you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with, uh, with Zig and the gang. Yeah, Zig, Zig, oh, yeah. Zig, 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 See you Ziggler. at the top. See you at the top, right? Um, is that, that's the book? Well, that was a book that my father gave me, and I actually had it on my license plate. Yeah? See you at Z top. Oh, that's so cute. Nice. See you at Z top. Yeah. Very cool. Ziegler fan. And uh, I still don't. I still don't really know what the what the water pump thing has to do with anything. But there's like, what's the what do you, do you know the nothing. significance of the the water? You got to keep the well. It, you got to keep going. You got to keep priming the pump. Yeah. Is that I mean, uh, if you stop before the water's coming out, it doesn't come out. Is that the idea there? You got to start all over. So you just got to keep just got to keep pumping at the thing, and that's how you get the water. Okay, right. guys. So it's a business. I know, right? So it's, it's a business principle. It's a I got video. it. So it's a business principle. Exactly. Just keep just keep going until you, you can't go no more, and then uh, you go into the wells dry, I guess. All right, there you have it. See, learn something new every day. All right. Well, we are uh, hopefully joined here by Mark Tim. Uh, and let's see. So hey, wait, do we have... Yeah, there we go. How you doing, Mark? What's going on, brother? I'm doing fantastic. Just finished... Uh, I heard you guys telling a little pump story there. Yeah, what's the deal with the pump, man? I, I need to understand that. What, what, what All is, right, can I can I just dive into that? Uh, absolutely. Zig Ziglar's famous pump story was, <laughs> you won't get anything out of life unless you put something in. Okay. I was sharing how, you imagine trying to tell your kids, you know, that you're going to give me an A and then I'll study. Mm-hmm. Okay, not going to happen. Yeah. How, how about your employer? Give me a raise and then I'll work hard. Mm-hmm. That's the whole concept. You got to put something in to get something out. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you, whatever you told was a much longer version of that, but I totally get it. So we'll, <laughs> we'll go from there. So let's do this. Um, so here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million uh, or currently run businesses that uh, that gross more than $10 million annually. So where where do you fit uh, on that spectrum, either with a past business or a current business? Uh, just give us an understanding of, of that entrepreneurial journey and how you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight. Absolutely. So I've started over 12 businesses. I've had seven uh, exits, and my last exit was a post uh, $10 million exit. Okay, sweet. So let, let's talk about that one. And that's uh, amazing that you've started and, and exited from, you said eight businesses or seven there, businesses? There's seven businesses. There is nothing I love more as an entrepreneur than selling my business because it is, it is the ultimate validation of your hard work, your effort. You conceive something, you dream something, and then you have an opportunity to someone else places a value on it and says, I want this, this is value. And so I love starting businesses, but I love exiting even more. Yeah, I bet, right? I mean, 10 plus. So what was the business that you exited for 10 plus? 
Okay, so I started a manufacturing company and back in the late 90s, and I was the largest maker of musical gifts in North America, sold them all over the world, and that led me to this little company called Amazon. Mm. And we started selling those on Amazon in 2010, and before long, we blew up the Amazon business, and me and my partners were had over 60,000 products that we listed on Amazon. And so I sold the manufacturing company in 2008 and then bought it back in 2016, and then turned around and sold it again in 2018, and at that point in time, sold the Amazon company along with it. Wow, that's insane. So, Richie, this is like right up your alley. I mean... Oh, yeah. I, so, what was the music business, or gift yeah, business, Yeah, so, so uh, we, we had a music box business. Uh, you probably, you may have seen it at some point in time. Music boxes where the top was a photo frame. So basically, people would buy the gift, and then they would buy it because it said something cool. Like we had fight songs at universities. We had uh, mom images. But it was a gift when it was given to mom. But when mom put her photo of her kids in it, it became an heirloom. And so we went from concept to selling a million of these music boxes a year. Jeez. And so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a great company for a long ride, and, and it's in great hands right now. That's the other thing as an entrepreneur. You not only want to exit, but you want to exit gracefully. You want to have an excellent or an elegant. I love the word elegant. You want an elegant exit where it's a win-win on both sides, where your business can continue on, you know, and you can move on to other businesses. And I was able to do that with this manufacturing company and then with the Amazon company. Hmm. And so, and just so I'm clear here, I mean, you said 60,000 products you ended up with on the other, on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's 60,000 products because once we unlock the formula, you got to understand 2010 was like the gold rush for Amazon. So now, you know, not that you can't make money on Amazon, but it's a little tougher. And so there's more players, but in 2010, there wasn't that many players. It was wild, wild west. And so we were able to really uh, figure out the formula, blow it up, get a lot of products. We started doing uh, what we were doing for ourselves, for other people. And we partnered with other brands and started, you know, blowing up their products as well. And so, you know, it, it became just an epic company. Did you end up using uh, FBA for that too? Were, you, were they fulfilling? Yeah, we, uh, we, we did uh, fulfilled by Amazon was actually a big part. You know, we, we continued in the early days, you know, FBA was just kind of getting started for us, but then FBA was really our, main source, but we also fulfilled ourselves as well because of our warehousing background with the music box company. We were very efficient in the warehouse. So we were able to list a broad range of SKUs and we did our higher moving SKUs uh, FBA and we did our lower moving SKUs inside of our own warehouse. So we didn't miss a single sale. I mean, if you can imagine, uh, if you look up Cottage Garden Music Boxes, it's a music box company and it has 4,000 listings on Amazon because we can list every possible combination that someone would want in a music box and because we can fulfill it. And so we just became very efficient in, uh, in delivering that. Mm -hmm. So, and are you still involved with either of those businesses in any way? Did you hold on to a piece or? Yeah, I, I held on to a piece. Uh, I don't have a non-compete. And so, you know, so I'm actually, uh, I'm looking at that space yet again. I can't help myself. Um, that's the, that's the curse of an entrepreneur is that, uh, once you figure out the formula on how you can start scale and sell a business, you just want to do it again. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and do it again. And so I find myself starting some other businesses, but migrating back to the manufacturing and the Amazon, the e-commerce. I love e-commerce and what I see happening in e-commerce. And the reason I'm getting back into it is because I see big players spending billions of dollars to compete with Amazon 
and I want to be in that fray. You've got Google that's now spending all this money with Google Express. You've got Walmart that's drawing a line in the sand and said, we're not getting beat. And now I see all these other people getting involved in it. And I'm like, light bulbs are going off. You know, sirens are going off saying, wait a minute, I got out. And now there's a whole new reason to get in. And they create an opportunity to get back in. Got it. I have a quick question for you here. So I'm looking, I actually pulled it up on Amazon, looking at your store. What if you have a piece of it still? Um, Cottage Garden stuff. Yeah. So that was the manufacturing company that led to the Amazon company that, uh, but we sold both of them. So, so it doesn't seem too overwhelming for people that are listening, thinking about 60,000. How many actual different boxes say did you have? Because I look at some of these, you're yeah. calling a different skew, but it really could just be this one's got a picture of a horse, yeah. this one's got a picture of a cross. But it's you, uh, you, you, you're already obviously you've done this before. Obviously, yeah. you've uh, started, scaled, and sold business. <laughs> Haven't sold it yet, but I'm I'm working on it. The key is in the formula. So here's the formula: we don't have, uh, you know, we didn't have to have four thousand different unique skews. We literally have about a hundred different unique kinds of boxes. And then we had 4,000 different possibilities and combinations. Mm -hmm. So we like to find underserved categories on Amazon and then go broad and wide inside of those categories. Yeah. And so we were able to do that in music boxes. Um, we're looking at a couple other categories that, you know, I, I won't necessarily say because we're looking to go in them in a big way. Uh, and so, but that's, that's kind of our methodology is to go broad. So you are actually in the middle right now of a huge launch. Yep. Um, with the, 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 well, why don't you tell, tell us about your relationship with sure. the Ziegler family? Um, yeah. cause I know we can talk about a, a lot of different things around your entrepreneurial career as well, but I want to give folks an opportunity to understand exactly what you're doing. And so far as the, the whole world of, of Zig Ziglar and that family is concerned, because obviously that, that name is ubiquitous with motivation and sales. And, and, and so, I mean, it's just, well, you know, it lives on, uh, in perpetuity here. So, Talk a little bit about what you're doing in so far as your work with the Ziegler family and so on. Yeah, well, I can tell you this. you There's not a single person that I believe you've had on this show that got there by themselves. We all had mentors. We had coaches. We had important people in our lives. And that's one thing that I want every listener to know is that every successful entrepreneur you see, they didn't get there by themselves. They had somebody along the way that was inspiring them, encouraging them. Because let me tell you about being an entrepreneur. It's about failure. You fall, you fail. That's the name of the game. The question is whether you get back up. Yeah. So, you know, so we had, uh, we had Les Brown on our, you know, our, so we're sitting here talking about Zig Ziglar, but Les Brown was talking about Zig Ziglar and he's like, look, I know I'm going to fall. He's like, the key is I want to fall on my back because if I can still see up, I can get up. And, you know, and if you've got people in your life that can reach out and pull you up and Zig Ziglar was one of those people, Zig Ziglar was one of those people that, that was there for me. He mentored me at 19 years old. So here I've had success in my life. And after these, these last exits, I said, who made a difference in my life and how can I extend that legacy? That's why I reached out. That's why I reconnected with the children of Zig Ziglar. That's why I've got a launch going on right now where I'm putting Zig Ziglar's content back in the hands of as many people as I can. He touched 250 million people while he was alive. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was no Facebook. There was no podcasting. There was no Instagram, no Twitter. He did it one stage at a time, one person at a time. Yeah. Now we've got all this technology. Why can't we add a zero to that? Why can't we add a zero to that? And that's part of what I'm doing. This is a give back. Yes, it's profitable. Yes, there's money involved. But this is as much about extending a legacy of a mentor that was there for me when I needed to be picked up, pulled up and pushed up. And we all need that as entrepreneurs. Yeah. 
No, that's really, really good. And thanks, Wade, for bringing down the sound there a little bit. That's uh, That works really, really well. So, uh, by the way, um, just and thank you for explaining the, the work that you're doing there. And, you know, certainly Zig was breaking new ground uh, in, in so many different ways with all the work that he was doing. Uh, you actually are breaking new ground for us. We've been doing this now for quite some time. And you mentioned radio I've been doing since 2009 on and off on since 2015. Uh, and we just launched Beyond Eight Figures last year, 2018. And I decided, you know what, let's uh, let, let's come into the, the, the new age of this thing called, uh, uh, what's this thing? It's like the internet, right? There's like a, this, this thing where you can connect with people online and all. And there's this new fad where you can actually do um, like video. I've heard like you can actually see people and so on. So you are the first person that we are actually doing this because uh, we do it from the studio. So we actually do it as a live, so to speak, radio show. And then we repurpose as a podcast. But we decided, you know what the hell, let's. Let's zoom this thing. Let's do it live, live stream it, and then let's have the video, and we'll release that as well. So you are actually our first video guest on Beyond Eight Figures. So thanks for you know staying with us as we worked out uh, a couple of the kinks uh, here. You're and- very welcome. I I think uh, part of it was my issue for going from live stream to here, and we didn't have a chance to do some testing. And so you know what I found though is, is hmm. that people watching understand that you know we all. I mean, this is a process, and so so thank you for letting me be your first person here. And we did get it figured out, and yeah. that's little part. But yeah. video is awesome. Video is powerful. And we found, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll, now that we're on video, the reason we were able to bring Zig Ziglar back is, is that, that we found a warehouse full of these. Now, those of you that are watching can see this is a beta. Okay, this is like a double Is that size. Sony Betamax? That's a beta, okay? And so, so and it says master because in Zig Ziglar's contract, he had a contract that said he had to have a beta master of every speech he ever did. Well, that was thousands. And so they just sent them off to this warehouse, and we discovered this warehouse full of beta masters that have never, ever before been seen unless you were sitting in the audience wow. listening to Zig Ziglar. We have betas of Zig teaching people how to speak. We have Zig teaching people. I mean, because in the early days, we know we only have access to about 2% of Zig's content, and the rest of it is on these beta tapes. And so we're in the process of, uh, it's called baking these and extracting off the video. And so so the world, there's all these legacy brands that uh, the world has not even seen, but a, the tip of the iceberg of what they have available. So big mm-hmm. fan of video. Glad you guys brought it to video. And uh, thanks for picking me to uh, <laughs> be the guinea pig. Yeah, well, and thanks for being flexible to accommodate us here uh, a little bit earlier on a Thursday. So l- and let me ask you this. So as far as, some of the secrets of successful selling are concerned. What what are some of the you know because selling is a is a skill that we don't really learn in school. Um, nope. You know, not there may be classes now, but certainly not when I went to school. I don't know about you, Mary or, or you, Rich, but I mean there weren't selling classes that taught you how to really engage in sales and so on. And then not really a conversation that we have around the dinner table. I mean, these aren't things that. Most families will be teaching their kids how to do. So selling doesn't, and it doesn't come innate to everybody, right? So let's talk about some practical strategies that we can impart here uh, as it as it relates to the teachings that you have in, in the successful selling program and then also what you're learning from Zig Ziglar and, and the family there as well. So maybe some practical tips around selling. Because sure. as you said, I mean, it's it's crucial for every business, period. Let's, uh, let's go like <clears throat> uber basic. Because I, what the best thing I can do is I'll identify some of the biggest mistakes that some of the listeners are making when it comes to selling. Because we don't get taught this. It's not taught in school. There's no classes out there to teach it. So you've got to be taught. It's caught as much as it's taught. 
that's why we decided to come up with this masterclass because we thought we've got to teach it. People need to learn this because it used to be taught more than it is now. So here's a, here's a real golden nugget. The one word that every business owner, entrepreneur out there doesn't want to hear, and it's only two letters, is the word no. Mm. Yet on the same token, I'm here to tell you it is the second best word that you can ever hear when you're trying to sell something. The second best word. Because no means you're actually talking to a decision maker. You're actually talking to someone who can make a decision. Now they just need to make a new decision. Mm -hmm. Maybe they need new information. Maybe they need to understand more information. But if you're talking to someone that doesn't know or isn't sure, you can't sell to that person. But you talk to someone that has a no, you know you've got a live one on the line. Kevin Harrington, who has done $5 billion in sales, I've watched him in business meetings, multi-million dollar deals, and he pushes his pitch to somebody, and as soon as they say no, he fights back a grin. Like, it's, it's coming right here. He's, hmm. It's his poker tell because he knows he's about to make a sale. Because if they can say no, they can say yes just as easily. Yet it's the one thing that we all shy away from. We don't want to hear. We run from. Yet what it means is I've got a live one on the line. I just need to reel it in. I just need to bring it in. They need more information. They need to understand the value. There's something they don't understand, but they absolutely are the right person to be talking to. You found a decision maker. Mm -hmm. So it's this huge mistake that entrepreneurs make. And then along with that, they sell past the close. They just keep selling and selling and selling because they're afraid to get the no. So they just keep going or they're hope selling, which that's the most frustrating thing in the world. They're like hoping someone will buy their stuff because they're giving away value and they're giving this away and giving that away. Well, they got to buy, right? No, they're not going to buy unless you do one thing. Mm -hmm. You ask for the sale. Mm -hmm. And so they just go way past the close. They had the sale made five minutes ago, 15 minutes ago. They just go way past it. Now it's fatigue and people are like, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And so they don't realize it's, well, why didn't they didn't buy? They would have bought, they wanted to buy. They just wore them out, you know? So, you know, and, and they just keep going. So my point is, is that, you know, and now here, I'll give you three. I love things in three. So the third one I'll give you is, is that selling is a process. So a lot of people fear selling. It, it makes their, you know, like their uh, spine tingle. They're like, ah, you know, it's slimy. It's sleazy. It's manipulative. You know, can, can I do anything but sell? Mm. Well, here's the thing. If you understand that selling is a process and you invest in mastering the process, then selling takes the pressure off the person. So the process takes the pressure off the person. So if you know that selling is a process and you master the process, now you don't have the pressure. Now you don't have to get nervous when it comes time to sell because you know the process. It takes the pressure off the person. Now you can just be real. Now you can be raw. Now you can just be genuine with the person and everybody wants to buy from someone that's real, raw, and genuine. The pressure has to come off the person and that happens with the process. Mm -hmm. We teach the process. You've been watching those betas, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I not only have been watching the betas, but my wife is in the studio. We're in a, a studio right here. My wife is here. So I'm listening to Zig Ziglar teach selling. So he's talking about how the country that we live in was we, America is America today because it was founded by the best salespeople ever. You know, Christopher Columbus had to sell Queen Isabella, you know, on why he could find the trade route to India. And she gave him the money and the ships, and he was a great salesman. George Washington, we think of him as the first president. Heck no, man, the guy was a master salesman. He literally took a country and said, we're going to go up against the world's superpower, and, uh, and here's the deal, okay? Join me. We're, we're, we don't have much guns or weapons. We're going up against the world's superpower, and here's the deal. If we lose, I'm going to get hung. 
and you might get hung with me, but if we win, we get freedom. Mm. But he was better at selling freedom, okay, than the Brits were, and that's why we're in this country today. And I could keep going with Thomas Edison, Thomas Jefferson, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, these people were amazing leaders. Yeah. They were amazing salespeople. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't the first person to ever talk about equal rights. He was just the first person to sell it on why it mattered and why we should listen and pay attention and change our thinking. Brilliant, beautiful, poetic salesman. And yeah. so, so I'm sitting there listening to all this. My wife comes up. She doesn't relate to herself as a salesman at all, like furthest thing from it. We got six kids. And so she comes up and sits down, starts listening to it with me. And I'm like, what's she doing? She goes, Mark, I'm in sales. She's like, I think I sell more than you do. I got to sell the kids to get up in the morning. I got to sell them on what to eat, what to wear, when to go to school. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'm in sales. Mm -hmm. And that's the truth. Nothing meaningful happens without a sale taking place, whether it's getting your kids to eat, whether it's putting food on the table, whether it is business, nothing happens without a sale. And I promise you, if you're not selling something in your business, you do not have a business. You have a very expensive hobby. Yeah, point well taken. Mary, I mean, you obviously are doing sales and real estate and, and whatnot. Uh, when, when you're not here in this lovely studio with us, I mean, you've got your own businesses as well. So yeah. how, doesn't sometimes, though, I mean, Mary, have you found that sometimes no means no? Or are you able to actually, because like that's that's kind of, maybe it's a misnomer or maybe it's something I'm leaning into. I'm not sure, but what, what's your take I, on sort of the, doesn't no sometimes actually just mean no? I would say from my perspective, I sell real estate and vacation rental property. I kind of give it away if I'm sensing there is a no and they typically come back because I'm not trying to push them or sell them. I'm always like, hey, if this doesn't work out for you, you know, that's good. I could even refer you somewhere else or to someone else. And I'm just being myself. Yeah. Really, I'm just, here I am. In the past, I could have been more triggered by, I really need the sale. Mm -hmm. But now I feel like I'm, you know, getting older, getting a little more used to the whole process and being more authentic. Yeah. Well, there's there's a quote that Zig shares, and I think it's the reason he impacted so many people. And you deployed this quote in your process. And that is, you can have everything in life you want if you will simply help enough other people get what they want. So what you're doing is you're just helping other people get what they want. And in turn, you do a good enough job of that, a generous, abundant job of that, and therefore, clearly, you're able to make a lot of real estate sales as a result of that. And so that's effective. Well, and just to add to that, I just closed a fairly good commission deal. And when the guy approached me, I just told him, you know, where I was at with what I needed. And I totally understood if it didn't work for him. And I would help him out to find out what would work for him with someone else. And he said, Let me, give me two days. And he came back and he said, okay. I'm going to, I want to work with you. And I was like, I had no like nervous anxiety energy about it either. I don't know if that's part of Zig's deal. Like, cause don't you think that buyers could feel that? Well, without a doubt. I mean, I, I was coaching someone the other day over this very thing where they're like nervous when it comes time, very successful by the way. And I said, so, so what would it feel like if I said tomorrow that to feed your family, you have to make 10 sales. I said, what would happen when your alarm clock went off? And he literally looked at me. This is a multi-million dollar dude. And he said, I would hit snooze. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You would hit snooze. He's like, yeah, just something about it just doesn't feel right. And I said, okay, let's try it again. What if I told you that tomorrow, all you have to do is get up and solve 10 problems that your customers have. 
just solve 10 problems, just serve them 10 times. I said, what would happen when your alarm clock went off? And he stopped for a second and paused and he said, Mark, I wouldn't even need an alarm clock because I would be up before the alarm went off because that's what I love to do. Mm. And so I said, done, you're done. I said, you're, you just solved all of your selling problems. You start solving problems, you start serving your customers and they will open the door for you to sell them whatever it is that you have to offer because they will know you, like you, trust you through that process. So that's my- That's, that's a my- great distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just want to take a couple of steps back and thanks for sharing everything that you're doing with, with the Zig family and Ziegler family there and everything else. But I, I wanted to actually take a step back to a little bit more around your entrepreneurial journey. Just because there are so many folks who are, are in that start phase of really trying to figure out you know, how to get beyond the embryonic stages of, of just this idea in their head and building a, a formidable business. I mean, to the point where you were able to sell one of your businesses from for eight figures plus, right? So take us back to the embryonic stages of that business. And of course, I know a lot of the selling strategies and things will, will tie into that. But were you just, uh, you know, a, I don't know, just a 30-something guy or 40-something guy or whatever you were at that age when you started that business and said, I want to get into this world and I just need to start. I, I'm trying to figure out how you started and then what happened after that. Yeah, so I, I actually, prior to being an entrepreneur, I was working for USA Today. So I was their director of marketing. I worked for Kellogg's. I even spent some time in the White House. And I just knew I was supposed to do something else. I knew that wasn't what I was supposed to do, that corporate America wasn't where I was supposed to be, even though I was good at it. And so what drew me to it was actually the idea of freedom and flexibility. I wanted to be the dad that I felt like I was put on this earth to be. I wanted the most valuable business to be the one I came home to, not the one I went to. Hmm. And you know, and that was really what drove me to become an entrepreneur. Now, the kicker is, I decided to become an entrepreneur. I didn't have a product, didn't have a purpose, didn't have a passion. I just knew I wanted freedom and flexibility to be, you know, this dad that I was put on this earth to be. My kids, up until having kids, I was fine in corporate America. But once I had kids, I wanted to be more plugged into their life. So that was my why. Then I had to figure out my what. And, And in the early years, I mean, it was tough because I tried to do it more on my own. I had this shelf in my house, in my basement, I called the shelf of shame. And it was all the ideas I had that didn't work. And what I found was, thank goodness, I did have mentors in my life. And if you're out there, you know, and you, you find a guy like me, okay, I've had some success, 12 businesses, sold seven of them. Clearly, you can do the math and figure out that not all of them were, you know, massive winners. You know, some of them, you know, we can do a show on, on the, the losers. But, but you look at it and say, man, this guy's really been successful. I can tell you that I've probably failed more than any guests you've had on here. Because I had to try a lot of things. I had a lot of trial and error. But when the curve started to get a little easier for me to go is when I realized there were other people that had failed before me. Why did I have to learn this all by myself? Why wasn't I listening to podcasts? Why wasn't I taking masterclass? Why wasn't I reaching out to smart people that were older than me or peers of mine that had already been there and done that? And that's when I started to accelerate. That's when like, I wanted to drive a sports car, but I didn't have the gas in it. You know, so it looked good, but no gas in it. It wasn't going anywhere. And so I started leaning on mentors. I started leaning on people that have been there. And and that's really, in my opinion, there are so many entrepreneurs that have great ideas and they're trying to do it themselves. Maybe it's insecurity. They don't want to tell people, you know, the fear of failure. They don't want to get a word no. But 
reach out. I mean, Zig would say you can change who you are and where you are by changing one thing, what goes into your mind. You want to change who you are and where you are? Take an inventory of what you're watching and what you're listening to. Change that. You will change who you are and where you are. Start listening to Eight Figures podcast. Start listening to, instead of watching some TV show, instead of watching Netflix, listen to this podcast. I flat guarantee you, if you go back and start at the beginning and listen to every episode one day at a time, all the way up until this episode, your life will never be the same. Mm-hmm. And what have you traded for that? Couple, a couple of episodes of Netflix, a couple of episodes of a couple of ball games. Turn off you the know, Hold on, let me let me let me time out you for a second. So, I mean, all great advice, and you're in preachy sailing mode, which is all good, and I expect that from you, and love you about you know, love you for that. But let, let, let me just take a step back though. Now, reel you back in here for a second, and and go back to the question, <laughs> which is the the business that you were able to sell for 10 plus. Take us back to the embryonic stages. So you got this, this shelf of shame. Okay, you got these so the ideas. shelf of shame yeah. yielded the manufacturing company. So <laughs> yes. That's a dot. And, here's, and here's, how it, here's how it started. I thought that my job was to create a product, okay? And I kept coming up with products and they stunk. I, like, I, that was not, I wasn't good at it. But I, I kept coming up with products because I, when I left corporate America, I took a sales job. I was a sales rep selling other people's products. And I'm thinking, this can't be that hard to make. I can make my own products. So I started making my own products. I wasn't good at making products. But I started then going out and asking my retail customers, what are you struggling with? And they said, rent and risk. Rent and risk. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can't pay their rent for them. I can't take their risk away. So what am I going to do? Their problem is rent and risk. And then it hit me. Wait a minute, I can. What if I just create a product and I market it as Cottage Garden, we take the risk out of retail. And I come up with a product that generates a high dollar per square foot, solves a problem for rent, and I guarantee that it will sell, solves the problem for risk. Hmm. At that point, my company started doubling every single year and doubled every single year. All right, hold tight, hold tight. So let's let's go back then to, I want to try to understand exactly what that first step was. So did you then go out and so you, so you had this idea, this was somebody else's product or this was your product that you developed? It was, it was product that other people were, it wasn't unique at all. I mean, it was not like I was trying to come up with the, the, this new unique product and was failing. What I figured out is I didn't have to innovate a category or product. I had to use that product to solve a pain point. And I ask entrepreneurs oftentimes when they tell me their idea, what problem does it solve? Mm-hmm. Because if it solves a problem, I can help you get it to the market. If it doesn't solve a problem, you may have a problem. And so, you know, so does it solve a problem? That's, that's kind of my early entrepreneurial eureka was if I solve a problem, if I have something that solves a problem, there's probably a buyer who would like to have that problem solved. So, you know, you were solving two, two problems. I mean, the, the, the problem was you had a, a manufacturer, right? Who had products that they weren't moving as well as they should. And then you had retailers who had this rent and risk issue, right? So you were, if I'm hearing you correctly, you were saying you kind of cut, you kind of straddled both of those lines and made it a, in, you know, I guess a win-win-win, right? It was a win for the manufacturer that had this stuff sitting there that they couldn't move. The retailer that well, I, I became the manufacturer. You became so the manufacturer. Once I figured out risk and rent, I went out and sourced my own product that solved that problem and started selling it to them. And, and, and they, the cool thing was, is that once I was solving their problem, like the product was way down on the list. Mm-hmm. It was rent, risk. How fast could you ship it? I'm like, I'll ship it in 24 hours. I'll deliver it to you. 
You know, I mean, I remember the early days. I'm like packing stuff up and delivering it to them. You want it the next day? I'll stay up till midnight and produce it and I'll give it to you the next day. Mm -hmm. Solving the problems, the product I had was so far down the list. But in the beginning, I thought it was the top thing. All right, hold on. I, Time out. Most I got to stop you again. So for those who are thinking in the way that you're thinking, I want to understand exactly what did you do? Did you did you actually find a manufacturer like local? Did you find a manufacturer in China? Did you have to raise yeah. money to start this business? Did you come out of your pocket? Did you stop feeding your 26 kids? <laughs> like, how did you like there? There are questions there that we want to have yeah. answers to. So. So, so once I figured out that I could solve this problem, I needed to find a product that did it. I looked at categories that I could actually guarantee it. So I looked at categories where I could change the product so that it was easy to change out and I could guarantee it without you know, a lot of risk. And so I first sourced locally because how could I go overseas to source? So everything was local at first. And then obviously when I got larger, I was able to go overseas. A friend of mine took me to a trip in China I started buying from overseas and I kept that formula. Interestingly, that formula stayed as the hallmark of the company all the way until the point at which it was sold and still exists with it today. So it's got so many different products now way beyond, you know, what I had there in the beginning, but the formula for risk, the formula for return, the formula for being able to change it out stayed the same. Mm -hmm. So did you, so you never raised any outside capital. Is that correct? No, that's and, correct. On that venture, I did not. And you never brought in any partners. So this is just you solo, just bootstrapping and doing what you got to do. Yep. And so what was the first hire? Like, when did you, did you, did you end up actually hiring anybody for that business or did you just run it until you got to the numbers you needed and sold it? No. No, so my first hire was actually uh, a high school kid that got off the bus at our house and put photo frames together. The beginning business for music boxes was actually photo frames. Hmm. That was the product category. The boring, nothing exciting about it. We put sentiment images and photo frames and we sold them and he showed up and put them together in a garage. And then we finally needed someone to process orders and we hired a second person who worked in our basement. And so we just went one at a time, one person at a time, got a warehouse, got a bigger warehouse you know, and then, you know, scaled it up from there. And interestingly, three of the first five employees that I ever hired outside of the high school boy um, still work for me in some capacity today. And so wow. two, two decades later, all they've done is, is I sell a business, they're like, what are we doing next? Mm -hmm. And so what are we doing next? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the people is, uh, is actually here with me today. One of the first people that, uh, that ever worked, um, you know, for me, one of the very first employees is here with me today. She is my chief of staff, my chief of everything. She's with me on this venture, you know, uh, her, her family. I mean, I put a lot of stock as an entrepreneur, put a lot of stock in loyalty. I put a lot of stock in how you treat your people and longevity to me says everything about the entrepreneur. That's mm -hmm. just me personally. That's my own philosophy. If people want to work for you for years and years, it means you're doing something right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Point well taken. And so at your peak, what were you doing in annual revenue? So at the peak on the manufacturing company was uh, $10 million. Okay. And, and that's the company that I sold and then turned around and bought it back. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then sold it again. And then that yielded the Amazon company, which ended up doing way more than $10 million. Mm -hmm. And when you sold it once and then you sold it twice, how, what was... What was the valuation? What were the metrics behind the valuation? Was it based on EBITDA? Was it based yeah. on gross so, revenue? What, what, how did you value it? And how, and was, know, I, and was there a big negotiation back and forth? And yeah. 
you know, where did that buyer come love, from, et cetera? Uh, having, having seven exits, I love negotiating uh, an exit because there's a million combinations. I happen to be at a place in life where I wanted to stay with the business. It's always better to sell the business on the way up than it is when it's plateaued. Certainly way better than when it's on its way down. So this was on its way up. So I was able to get my asking price, my five times multiple of EBITDA at the time because I agreed to stay with it. Even better, I guaranteed the first two years of profitability and said, if I don't hit it, I will actually put money on the table. Okay, so here's a little ninja negotiation if you're selling a business. I said, if I don't hit the first two years of profitability, I'll make up the difference of what you would have gotten on that profitability. So if it fell $100,000 short, I had to put $100,000 back on the table. But because of my willingness to be bullish and believe in it, I got the multiple I wanted. Now, the caveat for that is I also negotiated no cap on the upside of the, you know, of the earnout. And for those of you who don't understand maybe what that is, it's basically you sell a business, I got 50% of it down, 50% in an earnout. But what you do is, is that if you don't have the cap on the top and the business continues up, you can actually get double the sale of your business through the earnout, depending on how many years you've stacked onto it. So because I knew I was going to stay with it, I knew the upward trajectory, and so I was able to guarantee it, get the highest multiple, and then benefit as the company continued to go up. Yeah, super smart strategy. So, and, and during that earnout period, where you did you negotiate in then a salary for yourself? Was it just yes. strictly you did? So yeah, yeah I had a, I had a salary that was the going rate salary for running a business of that size plus an earnout. And, you know, and so I wasn't asking for more or less, but what was the going rate for running a business of that nature? And then I got an earnout, and, you know, and the same exact thing, uh, we, we were able to negotiate something very similar in the Amazon company. I can't disclose quite the details because I had partners in that venture. And so just out of respect for them, uh, you know, that's, but, but I use that same thinking and philosophy. It's unbelievably powerful when you sell on the way up and you believe in the future and, you know, you have the strength in negotiation if you can stand behind the numbers that you're going to do. And it looks like, you know, we, we have the opportunity to double the sale, you know, based on how we negotiated it. So love exiting, but love the strategy behind it. There is no one size fits all. There is no one way to sell a business. There's a million ways to sell a business. And it's about finding the combination where everybody walks away feeling like they won and then go out and make it a win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, point well taken. So as you look back on the seven exits, any any regrets, any things that you would have done differently? You Maybe you left money on the table and you feel like yeah, that probably wasn't the best deal I could have I could have struck in hindsight. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I could <laughs> I got some doozy. Uh, so my first exit, uh, I sold I started another manufacturing company and I sold it to a larger. I like to find my buyer before they have even know I exist. So I, I found the person that should buy my, uh, this little manufacturing company and they said they felt like they should buy it too. And so it was a handcrafted company. I sold it and literally three days after closing, they showed up with multiple C containers, loaded the whole company up and shipped it to China. Hmm. They had no intentions of manufacturing anything here. They wanted it for the prototypes, for the samples, for the, the molds, and they just shipped it to China. And so that was rough. Uh, that wasn't my expectation. That was kind of hard because the people who worked for it lost their jobs instantaneous. And so, so that was a little tough. And then the second one that I did, this was in 1998. I sold a retail company. I had multiple retail stores. And at the time, if you can believe this, listening, interest rates were over 10%. Mm -hmm. 
And so I looked at it and said, this is like the biggest sale. You know, I, I mean, this was like this massive sale. I was so excited. I'm like, I don't even know what I would do with the money, but I know this is such a great business. So I actually agreed to finance half of the purchase for the people buying it. So I became the bank for half of it. And uh, you know where this is going, right? I got literally one year's worth of payments and they stopped paying. Mm. And the only recourse I had was to take the business back, which they had run into the ground. I didn't want the business back. No. So I literally had to walk away from half of my sale. Uh, don't do that. Mm -hmm. If you're listening, <laughs> yeah, right? don't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just lots of things I learned along the way. That's You, you get smarter, you get better. And, and I also, you know, I, I would never do an exit by myself again, meaning I would always tap some experts. I would always have people that would consult me. Um, I would have, you know, I think an entrepreneur needs uh, a, a, like an exit consultant. Um, they need someone like a coach just for them. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a broker. I'm not talking about an attorney, but it is, it's very emotional to exit. And so, and actually the post exit is actually even more critical than the pre exit. And so it's that when you actually exit, what happens to your life after you exit is even more critical because if you do an earnout, at some point you're going to want to quit the earnout. You're not going to like, you're going to, you know, have some differences in the new buyer or you're going to lose your why or you're going to, you know, see your identity. So having someone along with you to help you in that post exit or even leading up to it so that you know that it's not, you know, it's a transaction. You, why burn you know, the, it gets very emotional. And so, so that's another piece of advice is I would never do it without having people around me to help me stay sane through an exit. Uh, you do it yourself. You're going to make a lot of decisions yeah, and maybe cost yourself the sale, or you're going to make a lot of decisions on the post side that you really regret. Yeah. Yeah. Points well taken. So as you now have become so familiar with the, the teachings of, of Zig and, and really inter just getting so engaged as you are with the Ziegler family and so on. Are you finding that some of those skills are transferable to your own entrepreneurial endeavors? I mean, obviously you're doing quite a bit with that family and now you found all these, you know, old tapes and you're going to be moving that up, but I have a feeling you're probably gonna be doing other yeah. ventures as well. Right. So how does some of what you're learning with the Ziegler family and those teachings and so on, how does some of that apply to what you're thinking about in terms of what's next for you on uh, on another entrepreneurial front well to be perfectly candid uh i'm involved in multiple businesses now i i don't want to i'm avoiding what i want to do is do the same things i've done before but do it in a way that i can scale faster and with less staff so to the last business i sold had 55 employees multiple ware warehouses it was very draining overhead wise and so now I want to scale businesses that can be more virtual. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to scale businesses that I can outsource, you know, some of it so that I can, I mean, I want to do the same thing that I did before, you know, three times as fast to be three times as big and have, you know, literally 10% of the staffing and overhead. And I think that it's possible today to do that kind of thing. And so, so that's more of the direction I'm going. I also find myself investing in other entrepreneurs. My business partner on the Zig Ziglar front is Kevin Harrington. He's the original shark from Shark Tank. We're involved in 10 different businesses together, but not as a majority owner of any of them. And so we invest in other businesses with entrepreneurs that have a great idea that need our infrastructure, our ecosystem, our Rolodex, where we can actually impact their business and give them a 10 times return with 10% of our effort. 
uh, that we might have had to do if we were doing it ourselves because we've got this principal entrepreneur to be able to drive it. So I do have some projects that are all mine that I'm driving uh, completely. And then I have projects that I've invested in uh, with, uh, with other entrepreneurs. And so, you know, so I'm, I'm fairly diversified at this stage. But the one thing I try, I don't want to do as much as be uh, the operational guy, you know, of the businesses. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you're able to do more than one thing is you just simply are, are more on a strategic level, so to speak. And obviously from an investment standpoint and putting in the, the, the funds to help, you know, provide the, the nutrients that business needs to grow. But is that how you're able to do multiple things then because you're yeah. not in on an operational level? Yeah, with the exception of the Ziegler project, which I am involved in an operational level because of the passion and the purpose behind that venture, everything else, uh, I, I'm in a more of a strategic, visionary, uh, capital, you know, involvement and helping them really uh, take things to scale quickly with, uh, with wisdom and knowledge and experience versus me actually having to do it with my own hands uh, and being on the spot. And so and I see myself doing more of that in the future. Mm-hmm. So I, I also I'm being because of the exits, I'm being asked a lot to uh, consult on the exiting side of things. So it's interesting that you guys have started this podcast because uh, um, a, a business partner of mine and another venture, we're actually doing a mastermind in Hawaii for um, for entrepreneurs who want to experience the kind of exits. She's had five exits. I've had seven. So we have 12 exits between us. And there's just not many entrepreneurs that can have an elegant exit. Yeah. You usually exit out of usually exit out of like an accident, like you're sitting somewhere and all of a sudden someone's like, I'll buy your business and you're not prepared to maximize that. Or you exit out of necessity. And you know, it's like I have to exit because of life circumstances or a health or an issue. And so, but what ends up happening is neither one of those are a good time to exit. Mm-hmm. They're not the right time to exit. And so, you know, so if you want to have an elegant exit, it's like you want to do it on purpose and you want to be thinking about it in advance. And so, so I do see myself, we're, we're going to write a book actually on the topic um, starting uh, later this month. And so, so I see myself spending a little more, you know, sharing my wisdom of what I got did right and wrong and sharing that with other entrepreneurs. And so it's, uh, it's not going to be the majority of what I do. It's just, there's so much in me of what I've learned that uh, entrepreneurs out there need to understand if you want to have an elegant exit, you got to do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yep. When you're uh, looking to invest, say you and Kevin are sitting there and do you look like a typical VC looks or are you looking at how the team is built? It sounds like you don't really care about the product as much, but I'm sure the product means we, uh, something like what's, what's the process? We bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bet on the jockey. Give me, give me a winning entrepreneur and they'll figure out how to win. Okay, give me a business that's a winning business ran by a losing entrepreneur, and they'll figure out a way for that business to fail. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so it's, I mean, I can look at a good business, which typical VCs are all about, you know, the numbers and all about, you know, lots of different things. They, they put less value on the jockey and more value on the horse. And I get that because they're looking for something different than we are. But we're looking to invest in smaller, you know, a million to 10 million, you know, size companies. You know, Kevin invested in a business three years ago. Guy sat in front of him and literally had a product that cleans glasses like I'm wearing right now. And he was doing a million dollars a year. And three years later, that business will do a hundred million dollars this year. Wow. And so, you know, so he he bet on the entrepreneur, he bet on a category that had a lot of upward potential. And it's paid out extraordinarily well. And so we, we look at the, so we bet on, we first bet on the, the jockey. 
we second bet on the category. So I want to be real clear on that. Even if we find, like we found some extraordinary entrepreneurs and they're in a category that's like a, it's a million dollar category and we need a hundred million dollar category. Mm-hmm. So we're just simply not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Point well taken. All right, look, we're going to have to let you jump here, man, but I uh, really do appreciate your time and hanging out with us here on Beyond Eight Figures. And uh, right now you're working with the Ziegler family, as you said, and you guys are, are smack dab in the middle of this awesome launch uh, where you are moving forward with helping people really understand how to master the sale and, and working with Kevin Harrington and that whole team there as well. And it's a, it's a really robust program uh, that you have put forth there with the secrets of the successful sale. Uh, and so we have information there for you. If you go to beyond eight figures.com forward slash S O S. So beyond eight figures.com forward slash S O S that's Sam Oscar, Sam, and you can definitely get more information there uh, about the secrets of the successful sale Really do appreciate you being on with us here today, Mark, and uh, being the, the the first one to go here as we as we incorporate uh, uh, Zoom as well. Thought? And I would love for you to do so. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Here's yep. the parting thought I want to leave you with. Yep. I want every entrepreneur out there to realize that, uh, like me, that they were put on earth for something special. And I want them to consider this thought. What if everything they learned today, everything they do in their business was so that they could be Uh, the parent, the mom, the dad, the spouse, so that the most valuable business in the world would be the one they come home to instead of the one they go to, they may very well already own the most valuable business in the world.